Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll read from the verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, as an oak, whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Amen. We know that God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Tonight we're going to think upon the preparation for revival. We've been looking at revival texts from the book of Isaiah. And it struck me that we need to get back to chapter 6. Because chapter 6 was Isaiah's commissioning, his call into ministry, his call into the work of God. It is somewhat strange that the call of Isaiah comes in chapter 6 because we have the opening chapters where Isaiah's ministry is outlined, his purpose, his message. And then in chapter 6, we suddenly have his call. And there are some thoughts as to why that might be the case. Some think that it is possible that God had called his servant at an earlier time, and this was the reaffirmation, the confirmation of the call. God came in in a very unique way in the year that King Uzziah called, the year that King Uzziah died. That's possible. It's not impossible. It is also possible that Isaiah recorded his call deliberately here in chapter 6 because he began with the Word of God. And he only thought of himself and his call at a later Chapter 1 in terms of time. Chapter 6 is the time that he was prompted by God's Spirit, the place in the book to put it in. And that's very possible as well. That's probably the reason. Simply because Isaiah rarely talks about himself. This chapter 6 is unique. It's one of the unique places where we find out something about the prophet's life. Because he, he talks so little about himself. 
Isaiah's ministry is one where he tells God's word clearly, forthrightly. And there's very little of a biographical nature in it. And, and that makes chapter 6 very special because the chapter that really gives us more information about Isaiah than any other is the chapter that details his call into ministry. And the reason why he, he does this, he wants to affirm his authority. He had the authority to be God's spokesman because he was called of God. And therefore, in this sixth chapter, he was telling the people, look, I'm bringing you God's word because God has called me and commissioned me to bring this word. This word that I'm bringing aren't my words. They are God's word because I am a prophet set apart by God. And as we read chapter 6, we are struck with how unique his call was. In fact, is there any servant of God in the whole of the scripture who had a, a more unique call than Isaiah? I suspect not. If we are to know revival, we need God to lay his hand upon us. God laid his hand upon Isaiah. And yes, our experience, in all probability, we cannot say never with God, but in all probability will not be the same as Isaiah's. But that doesn't mean that God can't step into our lives in a very special and unique way, a way that's unique for us when God draws near. And we need that preparation of heart. And we need that preparation in our lives that we might be made vessels that the Lord is able to use. And so let us just look at this sixth chapter and see what lessons we can glean from it. First of all, we have the period when he was called. He was called, according to verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah, you know, was a very special king. King Uzziah did an incredible work during his reign. It was a time of peace. It was a time of bringing the, the nations closer together, Israel and Judah. He was a great king of Judah. He was a godly king who did good work. He reigned for 52 years, uh, one of the, the longest reigns there was. Five decades he served this nation. And the reign of King Uzziah was a period of, of great hope and optimism. It was a period of prosperity. They were good times. But now King Uzziah had died. The old king that had been there for so long had gone. A period of transition was coming. And times were going to get worse. But there was also something else about King Uzziah. You know, God is his way of allowing great men to fall so that we will learn the lesson over and over that we're not to depend upon men. King Uzziah was the king that tried to go in to the temple to the holy place where only the priests were allowed. He tried to do what no king was allowed to do. He tried to usurp the priesthood. And he was withstood by the high priest. And he died a leper. God dealt with him. It's a solemn thing. So the year that King Uzziah died, there were so many lessons. A looking back at good times. A mourning over the king's failure. And looking forward into a very uncertain future. And he would see an uncertain future. 
After King Uzziah died, there would be the reign of Ahaz, one of the most wicked kings that ever there was in Judah. Then there would be the revival under King Hezekiah, but yet under King Hezekiah there would be the terrible attack by the Assyrians. When it looked as though Judah would fall, Isaiah would see all of these times. It was a time of change, the year that King Uzziah died. And we live in days of change. We live in days when we're starting to see changes in international politics, international affairs, and we'll not see the full outcome of those changes. And the full outcome of what's going on at the minute will not be seen for a generation to come. We think of the changes we've seen in our own land morally, the impact that's going to have on generations to come. We're living in difficult days, uncertain days, bleak days. But yet God has laid his hand upon us for these days in which we live. God has placed us in this time for a purpose. Just as Isaiah was placed in his generation for a purpose. That was the period. Let's think of the position. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. The Lord's position was upon the throne. It was as if God used King Uzziah's death to take Isaiah's mind away from the man, the king. The king had gone, but there was a greater king. The Lord was still sitting upon the throne. Whatever changes there might be, God rules and God reigns. Is that not a lesson to us? We are to take our eyes away from the, the governments of men. We are to take our eyes away from rulers and leaders and all of that kind of thing. We're to look at the Lord. We're to look at the one who ultimately is in control. And it is not the presidents and prime ministers with their weapons and their governments and their laws that are in control. The Lord is in control. And Isaiah would need that lesson. He would need that lesson when the Assyrians swarmed around the gates of Jerusalem. When every other nation around little Judah had fallen and had crumbled to the might of Assyria. With the hundreds and thousands of troops. Isaiah would need to remember the Lord was on the throne. And he was able to go and encourage Hezekiah the king. God was on the throne. Isn't it well tonight that God is on the throne? God rules and God reigns. And we need to see the Lord because what the Lord enabled Isaiah to see is what literally is happening tonight. It is as sure in this century as it was in Isaiah's century. And thousands of years have passed. But God is still on the throne. The sovereign Lord of all. But not only is the one that is on the throne the Lord of all, the one that is on the throne, is Jesus Christ. Turn with me over to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, in the verse 41. Jesus Christ, in this passage, actually quotes from this chapter. And he makes a comment on the glory that Isaiah saw. 
These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. And this chapter is all about Christ. It's all about Christ. Isaiah saw these things when he saw his glory. It's the glory of Christ. The one that Isaiah saw upon the throne was the Son of God. That's what Christ himself said. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's move on and think of the praises. The praises of the, the seraphim. We look above the throne now and we see the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory. This is the only occasion in the Old Testament where we read of the seraphims. We read of cherubim, we read of angels. We don't read of seraphims. The word actually means burning ones. They covered their face. They revered God. Their faces had to be covered in the very presence of God. And yet these are sinless creatures. Yet even they could not look at the glory of God. They covered their feet indicating that everything they did was dedicated to God. Wherever they went, was dedicated to God. It was all for God's glory. They flew constantly. They didn't stop. They were flying all the time. They were busy, active in the service of God. And what did they say? Holy, holy, holy. Threefold holiness. The holiness of Father, the holiness of the Son, the holiness of the Spirit of God. The whole earth is full of the glory. He's the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. That means he's the Lord who commands 10,000 angels and even more. For who knows how many angels God has to do his bidding. He's the Lord of hosts. But why should we fear men? Why should we fear the, the thinking of men, the logic of men, the power of men? Why should we fear? Because the whole earth is full of his glory. Not only is he on a throne, ruling and reigning, controlling the actions of that throne are felt in the whole world. The whole earth is full of his glory. And these sacred creatures have much to teach us about the spirit we should have in the presence of God. As we are in God's presence, we need that spirit of humility. We have no right to stand before him. As we use our feet, as we use our hands, as we are active, we need to be busy in the work and the labor of the Lord. Though that we would see the glory of God filling the whole earth. Because God is on his throne. But let's think of the product of the vision now. What happened when Isaiah saw this vision? Well, we are told that the posts of the door were moved at the voice of him that cried. The house was filled with smoke. Was Isaiah actually in the earthly temple as he saw this vision? The doors and the posts, they moved. And as he was in the earthly temple, was he transported into a heavenly temple? I don't know. But the house was filled with smoke. But it's the impact it had upon him. Woe is me. 
for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the Lord, the God of hosts. You know, there's nothing here about Isaiah's ability as a speaker. There's nothing here about the godliness of his life. And no doubt he had a godly life. What we do see here is a sin. His awareness, his consciousness of his sin. And he only really got an understanding of the sin of his nation when he got an understanding of his own sin. Do you see that? I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He didn't say I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That would have been pharisaical. That would have been self-righteous. We're guilty of that a lot, aren't we? We talk of the sins of others and yet we don't see the sins of ourselves. And if we're going to have a vision for the lives of others, then we need to first of all look at the sins of ourselves. And the only way by which we'll see our own sin is by seeing the Lord. You see, sin is something that grieves God. We shouldn't see sin as something that annoys us. It should annoy us. But it should only annoy us because the Lord is annoyed. We should only be grieved because the Lord is grieved. We should view sin as that which offends the holiness of God. And that was the vision that Isaiah got here. He had a vision of sin because he had a vision of God. Because sin is a transgression of the law of God. It's an awful thing to see the glory of God. It's a humbling thing. And yet, do we not need that vision? If God is to work. Let's look at the promise. The promise in the life call. As he got this vision of his own sin. So he saw the vision of God and his glory and his power and his fullness. Then he got a vision of his sin, the sin of the people. And then at that juncture, one of the seraphims came with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. Now let's just think about the altar. The altar was a place of sacrifice. The altar was a place where a beast had been laid and consumed with fire. And here was a live coal, a burning coal, red hot, even white hot. Burning. And this coal was taken by the seraphim that was placed upon the tongue of Isaiah. The coal came from the place of the sacrifice. And the coal represented the burning. The burning up of sin, the consuming of sin. Isaiah was conscious of his sin. God was going to deal with his sin. And he got the burning coal. But it came from the place of the sacrifice. And it's only when we get to Calvary to the place of sacrifice and see what Jesus Christ had done for us that we can understand the power of cleansing. Do we really understand tonight what it is to be forgiven? Oh, we know the Lord has forgiven us. We rejoice in that. We praise God for that. But the more we see of our sin and be aware of our sin, the more we realize the vastness, the greatness of God's forgiveness, His grace, what Christ did for us on that cross, is more than we could ever understand. Died He for me who caused His pain, 
For me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldest die for me? And as this live coal was laid upon his lips, we are told, the seraphim said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And yet is there not the idea here of pain? Repenting of our sin is a, a painful thing. We come to see the blackness of our sin as a hard thing. To repent of it. But yet, it's the only way to bless her. And Isaiah got a consciousness of that. We can only serve God because of the Lord's ministry. Is this not a lesson we need to learn here? It was only because of the place where that live coal came from that Isaiah was able to do this work. It's only because of Calvary, what the Lord has done for us, that we can serve him. We do not deserve revival. We do not deserve blessing. We don't deserve to be in a prayer meeting tonight. We have no right to any of these things. It is God's grace and God's grace alone. Isaiah's lips were touched. He was able to speak. He was able to preach. He was able to give God's word because he was touched with a burning love and passion for God who would offer his son on a cross to die for him. Is it any wonder Isaiah would write as no other prophet could write of the sufferings of Christ, of the suffering Lamb of God? Let's move on to the plea, the plea from the Lord. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? This was not the word of the seraphim, it was the word of the Lord himself. Is this the first time the Lord speaks to Isaiah in this passage? I think it is. He has heard the words of these remarkable creatures. He has seen the glory of God, but now God speaks. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? He saw the sin of the people. God equipped them with this life call. Now he had a work to do. But he had to be willing to do this work. And God was asking him to be willing. Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? Do you see the, the words that the Lord uses? Whom shall I send? But who will go for us? God. One God. Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We see the doctrine of the Trinity unfolded, not only in the threefold holiness, but in that phrase, who will go for us? God could have sent an angel, but he chose not to. He chose to send a man, but that man had to be willing. God has a work for us to do. As this mission approaches, God has a work for us to do, a people for us to reach. Whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? The work that only you can do and only I can do. A plea coming from the one upon the throne. A community with many people in their sin. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? We have the pledge, the pledge by the prophet. Here am I, send me. Simple words, great words. Words that would sum up Isaiah's ministry. As we think of all of these lessons from Isaiah, it all comes back to these words, here am I, send me. He had no hesitation. 
He was submissive. Submissive servants are the need of the hour. Submissive servants who will offer themselves freely to the Lord's service. And that's the place we all need to be in tonight. If we are resisting God's call in our lives, whatever that means for us, because what God's calling you to do may very well be different from what God is calling me to do. The work that God has for you to do tomorrow will be different from the work that I have to do tomorrow. But the person that resists the call of God will never do anything for God. Never. One way of guaranteeing that you'll never be used of God is to say, I'm not doing that. So perhaps the prayer to offer tonight is, Lord, whatever you have for me to do, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I want you to show it to me with clarity. And I'm going to do it. I'm not going to hold back because I don't want to miss out on the blessing of God. Are we willing to say that tonight to the Lord? Here am I, send me. The purpose of the prophet's ministry in closing, the purpose. These final verses, let's just think of them. And the Lord said, go and tell this people. Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. I want you to go. I want you to call upon them to hear. But then the Lord said, they're not going to hear. They're going to reject the word. It wasn't very encouraging. We don't labor to be encouraged by people. If we're just interested in getting people to encourage us just to keep going, forget about it. It's not the encouragements of people you need. It's the fact you're serving God. God said, make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Their eyes are going to be shut. Their ears are going to be blocked. Their heart's going to be hard. The message that you have, they're going to reject it because those people are facing judgment. And of course the judgment would not come in Isaiah's time. In fact, Isaiah would see a day of revival, but the judgment would come. And we already noticed some of these passages in a later time when Isaiah would talk about the coming judgment. But Isaiah said something in verse 11. He said, Lord, how long? How long is this going to last for? How long are the people going to resist? How long are they going to turn away from the word? The Lord answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. The land's going to be wasted and destroyed, and many men are going to be moved far away. And I'm going to forsake the land. Then the people will start to hear. Look at verse 13. But yet in it shall be a tenth and it shall return. God was saying, I'm going to keep a tenth for myself. There's going to be a returning. The people will come back. The holy seed will occupy the land once again. 
There will be days of restoration and revival. These days would come. Isaiah would speak of all of these things. He would speak of judgment. But he would also speak of revival. This was his purpose. And yet he would only live out that purpose in just a small snapshot of time. Because it would take a generation or two before the fullness of the purpose would be revealed. You know, we only do God's work here in this time that God has placed us here and we simply hold the fort. We preach God's word. We do God's will. We are willing to be surrendered. But God has a much greater plan than we could ever imagine. But we're part of that plan. Whatever happens in a future generation, we're part of that plan. Because we're all part of the great kingdom, the kingdom of grace. So yes, the chapter does end with a note of optimism. God raised up a man here, a man to do a work. And the great revivals that have swept the world, it has been most common for God to raise up men. He raised up men of the like of Calvin and Knox and Luther, Cranmer and Tyndale. Men who endured hardship, men who were willing to die. Some of them were burnt to death because they believed in truth. And we're here tonight because of those men. We need anointed men, anointed servants of God. May the Lord be pleased to give us a prayer that God would send us, that God would anoint men, anoint preachers who would change the course of nations. May God take us to Calvary. We might get that burning coal upon the tongue that we might be useful servants for the Lord. But let us not be resistant lest we lose out on the blessing. May the Lord bless these thoughts to your heart and to your soul tonight.